everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of the Building Voices podcast, keeping you up to date on all the latest hot topics and legal developments in the world of infrastructure, construction, and engineering. Today, I'm joined by CMS colleagues Robbie Leckie and Francis Garrett to discuss an interesting recent decision of the Scottish courts in which Robbie and Francis successfully acted to resist the enforcement of an adjudicator's decision. The case in question was Vanard UK Limited versus Dragados UK Limited. And Robbie, for those who are perhaps wondering why this decision is worth talking about, can you maybe tell us a little bit about what it means to resist the enforcement of an adjudicator's decision, the types of hurdles that you need to get over, and what we typically see when parties attempt to do so? Thanks, Connor. Um, the, the starting point really is that adjudication enforcement is something which the courts are keen to encourage. So um, in the majority of cases, if you're ordered to pay by an adjudicator, then the majority of the time you should be paying up. And the approach is often described as uh, pay now and argue later. And dating right back to when the Construction Act was introduced in, in the late 1990s, both the courts in England and Scotland have been clear that even if the adjudicators got the facts or the law wrong, the losing party should pay up. And uh, the way it was put in a, a court of appeal case of Carillion and, and Devonport was that uh, the need to have the right answer has been subordinated to the need to have an answer quickly. So the rationale is really that adjudication is it's intended to promote cash flow. So while it's binding on an interim basis, the parties have always got the ability to go to court or arbitration thereafter if they don't like the decision. Now, having said that, um, there are some scenarios where adjudication enforcement challenges have succeeded and broadly they fall into to two categories. One is where the adjudicator didn't have jurisdiction. So, for example, if he was appointed under the wrong procedure or there was no contract at all uh, or the wrong party has been sued. Or another example would be where the adjudicators answered a different question to the one that he was asked. So he didn't have jurisdiction to reach the decision that he has. The second category is where there's been some sort of procedural unfairness in the process, so described as that the rules of natural justice not having been complied with. So if the adjudicators disregarded one party's submissions entirely, or if there's actual or apparent bias by the adjudicator in the way that he's gone about the process. But it's worth noting that you know, when we're talking about the rules of natural justice, the courts still take quite a robust approach. It's, uh, it's recognised that there is only a, a limited time frame, normally 28 days unless it's extended. So there can still be an element of, uh, of, of rough justice. And uh, again, the courts will take a dim view of the parties scrabbling around, as they say, for technical objections when the proper course is uh, if you or have a decision against you, you should pay up and go to court or arbitration if you're dissatisfied. So that's the normal starting point. But um, as uh, I think Francis might tell us, there are we have recently had some success in, in resisting enforcement. Thanks for that, Robin. I think uh, it's clear to hear there that there are a number of hurdles that to get over if you want to be successful uh, in attempting to resist enforcement. And Obviously, on this occasion, you've been successful in doing so. So, yes, let's uh, let's hand over to Francis to maybe tell us a little bit about this case and why uh, on this occasion, Dragados was able to resist enforcement of the adjudicator's decision. OK, thanks, Connor. I think the deciding factor in this case was that the adjudicator's decision prevented uh, Dragados from making a time bar argument it would otherwise have had the opportunity to make 
Um, and just to unpack the workings of that a little bit more so that you can understand how the judge reached his decision. Bannold had issued a compensation event notification on the 20th of September 2019 for an extension of time. And the adjudicator selected a baseline programme for analysing delay, which neither party had put forward in submissions or expert reports. And in fact, both parties had expressly rejected this programme as being suitable for the baseline. Um, the adjudicator then went on to make his own assessment of where the critical path lay using his choice of baseline programme. And he reached the conclusion that Van Ord had been critically delayed from the 31st of July 2019 onwards. Now, I don't think that selecting a different programme by itself would have got Dragados over the line here, or even that the adjudicator arriving at a different conclusion to the parties on the critical path, because both of those conclusions could probably have been reached on the material that was in front of him. But I think the really critical point here was that the adjudicator found that Van Ord had been delayed from the 31st of July 2019. And in doing that, he ignored the seven week time bar in the contract for compensation event notifications. Van Ord, as I mentioned, had notified its compensation event on the 20th, 20th of September 2019. And seven weeks prior to that was the 2nd of August 2019. So if Van Ord had been delayed by the event from the 31st of July 2019, as the adjudicator found they had, their compensation event notification was two days out of time. So we argued that if Dragados had known that the adjudicator thought the critical date for the compensation event was 31st of July 2019, it would have argued that the compensation event was time barred because of late notification. And I think that the court was most persuaded by that point. The judge indicated at the hearing that the tipping point for him was really the fact that by not putting the choice of the 31st of July date to the parties, the adjudicator effectively deprived Dragados of the chance to make the time bar argument. And that would potentially have been a complete defence to the whole claim. So that, Connor, is what I think really took this case in the judge's mind over the line into being a material breach of natural justice. Oh, great stuff, Francis. Thanks for uh, thanks for that explanation. And I think um, as a as a final thought for our listeners, um, it would probably be good to just have a quick chat about what they can maybe take from this decision, uh, the types of things that they could maybe look out for when they're reviewing an adjudicator's decision in future and trying to determine whether there's any merit in attempting to resist enforcement on similar grounds. So I, I think um, partly the one implication that this really has is, is for adjudicators. Um, I, I think it's probably worth starting off by saying that it doesn't change the law. Um, I don't think this decision is really an implementation of existing principles that had already been set down in previous cases. But it does mean that adjudicators during the process, if they're in a position where they're considering departing from uh, the submissions or the arguments that were made by the parties, 
and particularly um, going beyond um, what was claimed by the referring party in any respect, um, then I think there is a, uh, this just emphasises the need for the adjudicator to give the, the parties the opportunity to comment on that uh, before he reaches his decision. And if the adjudicator hasn't done that, then it means that the door might be ajar um, in some circumstances for parties to, to resist enforcement. But I think it's worth also bearing in mind that that's only going to be possible where the, the failure by the adjudicator has uh, made a material difference, or at least had the opportunity to make a material difference to the outcome. So there's still no merit in scrabbling around looking for uh, reasons um, to resist enforcement, unless it's something where there has been a genuine unfairness um, that has actually affected, or at least had a, a reasonable possibility of affecting the outcome of the decision. So it sounds like uh, really going forward, you know, as the position has always been, every case is going to turn on its own facts and its own decision. And while there's, there's potentially something here to look out for, it's still going to be difficult going forward to resist uh, an adjudicator's decision, as we've seen for many years now. Does that sound about right to you, Robbie? Yes, I think that's right. I mean, the, as I, I said at the outset, the, the starting point is that the courts are uh, keen to enforce uh, adjudicators' decisions and to support the policy of the Construction Act and ensuring that adjudication allows cash to flow through the industry. Um, and uh, this is an example of one of the, the rare cases where enforcement will be refused, but it doesn't change the general principle uh, that uh, most decisions will be enforced. Very good. Well, hopefully that's given our listeners something to think about and thanks both Robbie and Francis for the first-hand insight. That's everything from us for now, uh, but we hope you've enjoyed this uh, and we hope you'll be listening in to the next Building Voices podcast. Bye.